Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning to you and thanks for tuning in. This is Beyond Governance at 101.9 High FM and my name is Nimrod Opambele. It is good to be here and thanks for so much for your company, which is much needed. Uh, as we get our thoughts and decipher some of the very complex social and political issues facing the country. Hopefully would add value in illuminating some of the blind spots through our robust engagement with our guests. In today's episode, we pay particular attention to, to country's energy crisis, which continues to build an economy recovery. Uh, in my view, this crisis also exposes the depth or the depth of country's body politic to the extent to which the constitutional democracy project is led or misled, managed or mismanaged by those who are masquerading as shepherd when they are actually wolves. It is a colossal of leadership vacuum marred with unrelenting governance controversies. That's my, my view. Yours is most welcome. During, as you know, during the past three weeks, severe law shading has disrupted all our lives and caused immense damage to the economy. The daily power cuts we have seen experienced in an inconvenience millions of South Africans' households and have presented huge challenges for business to recover. In making sense of this humongous, I would imagine, and complicated uh, issue with a devastating impact on the economy, which is barely recovering from unprecedented effects on heels of massive looting and daily protest cuts that by damaged property property. We will be engaging with thought leaders on this particular issue. Hopefully by the time we are done, you and I will be in a better space to comprehend some of these issues at this moving forward. This morning, as I've already indicated, I have brought a fairly substantial and substantive individual who's going to uh, give us a sense of these very complex issues. And her name is Rosette Mashela, who's a development finance specialist with vast experience in energy and infrastructure across South Africa. Without any waste of time, let me give this opportunity to welcome my guest this morning. Rosette, good morning, ma'am, and welcome to Beyond Governance. Good morning, Nimrod, and the listeners at Khuse Moleshe on this side. You have noticed as a concerned South Africans, and party to a host number of sessions wherein governments and other thought leaders have tend to unpack these very complex issues which are historical and be that is may we don't seem to have a firm grasp on the energy crisis just just an overall perspective from your end is there an end um, at the end of the tunnel uh, that's a million dollar question it depends <clears throat> on what we do with respect to our situation today uh, to ease the challenges that we are facing, including load shedding. So what we do is very, very important. We have plans which we can go through with respect to trying to arrest the challenges. But we have in the past have had plans in the past uh, which we have not seen through. So it's very much dependent on how serious we are in trying to address the problem and how we put a shoulder to the wheel and try and push forward. Interestingly, you made mention of a number of plans that you've had before, and which means this time around there has to be a different level of commitment, live a different level of political will, and put in the shoulder to the wheel, as you've said. What would you consider to be critical success conditions or factors for a turnaround strategy, of a turnaround, of a turnaround? The biggest challenge that we have, we have a non-performance by uh, uh, by ESCOM with respect, particularly the power plants that they have, 
the coal-fired power plants are not performing in line with where they should be. So any intervention should should include addressing that problem. Well, one of the problems, for instance, is uh, with respect to, to maintenance, which the government is trying to get involved with looking at all those plants. If I give an example, we have... Um, uh, uh, about 15 power plants within ESCOM. Now they've chosen the top six, which they think have a great potential for a turnaround. An example is that we have, out of the top six that they've chosen, we have uh, two that are between 42 and 43 years old, and then we have another two that's between 34 and 37, another one is 26, another one is five years so uh, specifically the one with the five-year uh, lifespan so far, Kusile Power Plant has been in existence for five years. There is no reason why we should be talking about it having energy availability factors, which is just availability of a plant, its performance being so low. So there will be a concerted effort to make sure that those plants are turned around and they perform according to the way they should be. In addition to that, New generation capacity will be brought online to help augment what ESCOM does, hopefully reduce what they spend on on diesel and all other matters, and that may help with the matters. Uh, We are now being called upon to take a quick uh, break. We'll come back just in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Thank you very much. Uh, this is Beyond Governance at 101.9 High FM. Uh, my name is Nimrod Timbele. I am joined by Rose Moleshe, who is a development fund specialist with vast experience in energy and infrastructure across southern South Africa. Southern Africa. We are talking a very complex issue about energy crisis, and she's giving us a perspective on some of the critical success conditions uh, that are needed to ensure that the, the turnaround plan that has been unveiled by the president is a success. Rosa, one of the issues that you've raised, which is quite critical, is the non-performance of power plants, which in your view, some of them should not have been in a position of quagmire, given the recency, like Kusile as an example. What would you consider as issues that are left unresolved from Kusile point, point, point of view, given the fact that it's a recently new, it's a new power plant, Build on on a very latest technology, one would imagine, and secondly, at a huge cost to taxpayers. I think one, it would relate to the governance with respect to the whole build program that ESCOM started. I think around 2015, 2014. I think that there was not much of control in terms of governance, in terms of financing, in terms of timelines. Those projects went way beyond the timeframes which were envisaged at the time. There was also, as most of us would know, there's a Zondo Commission, which alluded to a lot of corruption with respect to those contracts in those projects. And then when the plants were completed in terms of uh, construction and commissioning, we saw problems related to defects. Because of the governance issues that were not really managed as well, you had a difference in terms of uh, the contractors that had done the work as well as ESCOM, quarreling about whose challenge, whose problem it is that the plants were not done properly. Now, 
Normally, when you do construction of such plants, you have a fixed time, fixed budget, contract. Somebody does the plant and they give you food stoods. That's called a wrapped EPC contract, engineering procurement construction contract. Now, in this case, it was not wrapped. Different contractors, I think over almost 50 different contractors doing whatever they are doing. So in the end, there's now a question of whether the defects, who's responsible for the defects. As a result, at this point, ESCOM is working with the contractor to try and fix the challenges. They will quarrel later in courts about who's responsible. So they're taking 50-50% responsibility. They've already done that with the Mid-Dupi power station, which gives us hope, and they've learned lessons from that. Most of those plants are up and running now. So we, it gives us hope that with, with the Kusile, the same process will be followed. And at least from a technical point of view, the issues will be resolved. Later on, they can deal with the governance, who's responsible, who pays for what. Interesting observation, given the fact that there's clearly a lot of multi-layered issues ranging from poor oversight on the side of government and uh, just lack of control on the side of government, particularly in relation to construction companies, uh, division of labor, who does what, who needs to end. And we don't seem to have learned so much from that particular issue. But coming back to one of the critical success conditions uh, which has been punted around is skills and competencies. The word from government is that we do not have sufficient men and women of stature to man the power station. Your take on that and what will be the turnaround from that particular point of view? So we understand that um, a lot of people, I know if, if a few friends of mine were engineers at ESCOM who left for one reason or the other. Uh, so we understand that uh, what the government is proposing is to bring back the guys who used to used to manage these, <clears throat> these power plants to assist I don't know from a governance point of view whether that would work or not because there's a potential that it could work if it depends on how the whole process is managed. It could also, with the existing staff, have um, uh, implications in terms of who's accountable, really. So that process, again, it needs to be managed very delicately, very well, uh, if it works. But I think the other element to that is that uh, ESCOM used to have original equipment manufacturers uh, who would uh, be assisting with respect to maintenance. So the equipment is yours. You are the one who implemented it. You know it better and you know how to maintain it. And that would not have problems. Due to financial issues and other issues, um, they have not been uh, really working with those. So I think the government, with respect to the... um, Public Finance Management Act, have re- when they talk about red tape, have sort of looked at some of those problems and allow is allowing uh, ESCOM to procure original equipment manufacturers where required to be able to help with the more delicate issues in the plant. I think they're also resuscitating their old training facility uh, that ESCOM used to have. So that's almost like a, a longer term strategy, which is a good thing. Interesting. Uh, one is the fact that the procurement issues has been attended to, um, wherein ESCOM is being given an opportunity to perhaps maybe over, overcome the red tape, the PFMA red tape in terms of procuring or procuring or procurement of uh, original parts. 
And the other fascinating point that you bring into attention is the resuscitation of old training facilities, which has been an issue in the current dispensation, uh, not only in the energy sector, but even in education. We've seen an attempt to resuscitate uh, old training, whether in health, uh, education, and so on and so forth. But anyway, that is a conversation for another day. But it is interesting that you have raised that particular issue, which does suggest that the policymakers were not really uh, evidence-led in their dismantling or discontinuing of some of these old training facilities. Coming back to the point which um, is at hand around skills and competencies, and this is something that the ESCOM CEO, Andre, indicated that there are plans to bring back artisans and engineers as mentors. And that also has a completely different take to whoever that is currently sitting there um, as an engineer who is now going to be mentored by somebody who has left the system. From a organizational cultural point of view, which I would imagine has evolved, and from a practical and racial connotation point of view, because most of the engineers that left happen to be white and Africana. So organizational culture would have changed, I would imagine, and it's a very complex and not an easy uh, way. How practical is it from where you're sitting in terms of these guys coming back and being, you know, now training and facilitating uh, new skills to the current incumbents, who majority of them would be more, would be black, I would imagine. Yeah, it's a very complex issue, and um, I don't know how it's going to be managed. And I also um, uh, empathize with the people that work within ESCOM that are credible people that have the resources and the skills, but uh, are caught in a in a challenge of governance issue. Because we know that the biggest challenge uh, that ESCOM has had has related to governance. And um, some of us have worked for state-owned companies. We know what it's like when uh, you have the skills, you have the competence, and you have the credibility to work in an organization, but the system itself is so corrupt that it doesn't allow for those people to do their work. And then now uh, a so-called solution with the mentor that comes in who has not worked for a, in a coal-fired power plant for quite a while, and when they work there, they were they had backup of original equipment manufacturers. Now they are coming to mentor you. For me, <laughs> I don't know about those people, the, the, tip, the exact category of people that I'm referring to, how they would feel from an organizational culture point of view, unless we are talking about a shortage in a particular area where a very specific assessment has been done and there's an identification of some of the people have left and there are not enough people. And this is the particular gap, and that gap comes through. But the word mentoring, uh, to me, is, uh, I don't think it would sit, sit, sit very well with me unless I really recognize that in a particular person was bringing a particular skill and there is a gap, a real gap in that area. So it also is, has a potential to bring in conflict and make things worse. That's something that is very delicate, and you're quite correct. There's something that requires very sober assessment, bringing in all the stakeholders on the table to address um, the country's biggest issue, not so much about individual per se. It would require a very good change management, thought process and strategy that is pretty much inclusive so that all the stakeholders, at least in my view, are able to see the bigger picture 
as opposed to the myopic self-interest orientation, what would you consider to be, I mean, would you agree with me that change management, it has to be one of the biggest elements. And by the way, in my personal experience, this is something that failed. You have mega project coming on board, stakeholding engagement, participation, and, and at the critical point, it's often missing. So I'm not sure what the ESCOM processes have been from a change management point of view. Do you consider this as one critical lever that could enable the turnaround strategy to be more effective? So it's one of those, but I, I hope that, as I say, I hope that it's a genuine effort to bring in real skills in labor where they are required, not just a... There's a perception that the people that are within ESCOM now have no capability. I'll give an example. Uh, one of the power station managers has been struggling, according to what we are told, we are told is sabotage with respect to the, t- the quality of coal and the damaging of the equipment with uh, um, uh, things that are deliberately put out there. Uh, we are told that uh, some suppliers will bring in um, HFO, which is the diesel or fuel, to the plant but would not deliver it. Now that power station manager, if we're told, if what we're told is correct, let's assume for practicality that is correct, is not struggling with skills per se, but is struggling with an, an issue that is outside of their technical competence, which is fraud. And ESCOM is a key point, a national key point, which is supposed to be protected with measures in place to make sure that there's no sabotage that takes place. Now, if I'm a manager that's an engineer managing a power plant, now you have to manage all this corruption and fraud, people stealing maintenance stock from your plant. Is that a competent issue? Is that a competence issue or is that something else? In that case, you misdiagnose and you bring in a technical former manager, power plant manager, that is, let's say, hypothetically, is a white man and you're a black person. How would that make you feel? Not necessarily bringing it to an individual, but just to try to make an example that is practical. Um, how would that make you feel? Because it's not related to your competence with respect to managing a plant. So these things are complex, multifaceted. And in my view, that there should be a proper diagnostic and where the skills are required, of course, that they should be brought in but very carefully managed. Thank you very much for that insight, which I think um, has, you know, Bob just dropped when you say that there has been an aha moment for me, and I certainly think would illuminate the same aha moment to the listeners. The assumptions, I mean, what is critical for you is that we need to have a proper diagnosis of the problems. Some of the problems are beyond the technical capabilities which currently exist. If the if you have misdiagnosed the problem, which which in some instances has been caused by sabotage um, of some of the employees sabotaging the very same power plants, and if there's fraud in terms of putting through poor quality material such as cold, those issues are beyond the competence issue. And if you're going to have based on what you're saying, if you're going to have a blanket approach with based on misdiagnosis of the problem we are likely to escalate the challenge even worse. Am, am I correct to interpret your views from that end? That's my view, yes. Definitely, that's my view. Unfortunately, let's, let's gonna, we're going to have to take another break. I know the conversation is getting very heated, and the, the listeners will surely been given an opportunity to comprehend some of the issues 
uh, that you've put forth. Let's take a break. We'll come back in just a second. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Hey, this is Beyond Governance at High FM. I'm joined by a stunning lady with reputable insights in developing finance, energy and infrastructure across the, the Southern Africa. And her name is Zeph Moleshe. Before we went to break, she really gave us depth of issues that needs to be comprehended, comprehended in the analysis of the ESCOM crisis. Critical to what she put forward is the ability, proper assessment, or the ability to properly assess or diagnose the issues from the competency point of view. Clearly, some of the issues that have been punted have got nothing to do with competencies of the current incumbent. There is a fraud, there is sabotage in the value chain which undermine the very recovery uh, trajectory, trajectory of ESCOM. This issue is multifaceted and it does require um, a very sober mind approach so that people are able to have a more clear and long-term perspective on how to address some of these issues in a systemic fashion. That's the vein of a proper diagnosis. You're able to intervene at key points and, and you're able to have more longer-term uh, approach. But one of the things that you raise, which is of concern, uh, Rosa, is ESCOM being a national key point, and yet the control environment is so lax or does not bolster confidence that we have clearly incident of, of sabotage. Um, what will be done differently? The, based on your experience and exposure when, when you know, we're having conversation with government and other thought leaders, how to meet this particular issue? in the butt of sabotage that is causing the country millions of rain daily. First and foremost, it's actually very, very disheartening to have to have a conversation about a national key point that is being sabotaged. It's really, really, really the lowest in terms of what we can do as a country with respect to protecting our assets. If somebody can come in and deliver uh, diesel or heavy fuel oil, and they don't really deliver that, and they uh, go, run off with the truck. To me, it talks to the measures. I mean, I used to heck, my mom used to to own a petrol station for lack of a better word. For lack of a better word, you would have to deliver that, and they, there's a dip that you put to measure how much is in, and somebody at all points is on on the side of the owner as well as the the one who's delivering. And there's not just a delivery where you're like dropping off things. There's measures that you put in place. So I don't know how it works in ESCOM. So that's one. I'm just puzzled about some of those kind of things. But to go back to your question, the Minister of Police, when there was a briefing recently uh, following the president's address on the matter, said something very telling in my view that when he walked around with the president and everybody else around the Tutuka power station, that he, he didn't even know why he was called to be part of the delegation that was looking at ESCOM issues. So for me, that's telling. If he didn't, he didn't know, it means he didn't know that, uh, and we're told that people have been prosecuted uh, already on in this regard. So if the Minister of Police doesn't understand that why he, he was called until until he got there, then it means that there's a, there's a the different uh, parts of government have, have been have been working. The different arms of government have not been working in a cohesive manner. And as I said again, there's a national key point act 
role, what is the role of the police with respect to that? So I think that is better now that we are looking at a so-called crisis committee that the president has, has assembled where all the different minister, ministers with different responsibilities are coming together in a cohesive manner and they are understanding the problem, understanding what role they could play to help with the problem. Maybe that will, will help us get to the root of the problem. As I said, there were plans, many plans before. Uh, hopefully this plan will, will, will help us diagnose, have the right role players around the table to arrest the problem. For your interest, for every interest, I hope that uh, plan works because we've had so many plans in this country. Brilliant plans on paper, execution has been an issue. Um, the classes uh, committee that you make and referring to, I mean, we've seen many of those. Truth mm-hmm. be told, we've seen so many uh, crisis committee, we've seen so many commission of inquiries and very little come out in terms of the in terms of those kinds of investigation. It will be quite interesting to see who are some of the culprits, how many arrests have been made, so that we get to know, or at least some of these issues I built to bolster the public confidence that the system is working. Unfortunately, I mean what you just revealed to us is also telling that there's not much confidence in different arms of state. We have seen it in July unrest. The Minister of Police, the Minister of Intelligence, were speaking completely uh, cross papers. They were talking different language on a very pertinent central point, which does suggest that there's not much communication. But anyway, that's another conversation, but it is telling. Let's take another break. We'll just come back in a second as we gravitate towards the end of our conversation with yourself. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance at uh, 101.9 High FM. And thanks for tuning in. I am joined by a fabulous lady called uh, Rose Muleshe, uh, who is a development finance specialist with vast experience in, in infrastructure investments. Um, she's really been giving us critical insights on the diagnosis and misdiagnosis happening at ESCOM uh, and some of the turnaround strategy, critical ingredients for them to be successful. Rose, one of the issues that we obviously need to look at, because of crisis after crisis after crisis, crisis by its nature forces any plans to be expedited, either towards a positive positive trajectory or negative trajectory. Hopefully, positive trajectory would be an issue. Let's look at transformation, particularly from a women empowerment point of view. Because when you've got a crisis, how you roll out your original plan does not mean everything takes priority. And I would imagine these kind of crises do undermine the extent to which the system, political system, is focused on women. Your take on that, how disruptive are these crises to uh, economic, economic parity? I think that the transformation is going to fall <laughs> to an extent at the altar of emergency, getting electrons in the system. We're already hearing that our major objective is to get energy in the system. And we're going to, one of the solutions that's proposed is procurement by ESCOM, of power from existing independent power producers, particularly some in the renewable energy space, and also the procurement from the regional parties uh, like uh, Zesco in Zambia, BPC, uh, Otsana Power Corporation, uh, potentially EDM in, in Mozambique as well. 
Now, with respect to the procurement process, I think you probably would have heard the crisis committee talking about bid window five, which is the bid window where procurement had happened and uh, those projects did not reach financial close, mainly based on the prices being so low. One of the other elements is a localization, uh, uh, getting um, part of their procurement to, uh, to be sourced from internally in South Africa. Now, for me, that, um, that, that's one of the elements that is being relaxed to be able to expedite that project. And then there's bid window five, which has been, is going to be doubled now from 2,600 megawatts to about 5,200 megawatts in order to, to address the, 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 the challenge uh, in the short term. So that procurement process in itself as well, there will be concessions made with that, with respect to that. Now, if you combine that bid window five and I think it's 2,000, 600 megawatts, if I'm not mistaken, and you add this 5,200 megawatts, that's more than the current capacity of renewable energy that we we have in the on-stream in South Africa. And that will be expected, firstly, in a very short space of time. Secondly, there will be concessions made. That means that transformation is going to be very much secondary or bottom of the list with respect to that. Procurement from Zambia and other countries is not something that's new. Um, so it's just to alleviate the pressure. So in my view, the issue with, with respect to emergency procurement, procuring so much capacity in a very short space of time, number one, I don't know, there are issues there. And then secondly, relaxing some of the requirements that were there. And they were there for a reason, because the reason why you were looking at localization is to build infrastructure and, and to build capacity, sorry, for manufacturing within South Africa. And big program like that should have, should have been an accelerator of that rather than achieving the opposite. So that's one of the concerns that I have that we are just now going to be just buyers of power, really. Technology, if I can give an example, if there's time, if you look at a one renewable energy project, let's say um wind project or a, so, a solar project, let's say 100% of the total cost, if you break down the total cost, almost 70 to 80% of the total cost of that project go towards what we call an EPC contractor. That's an engineering procurement and construction com- uh, contractor. Uh, the top 10 of these contractors are international. They are all from outside. So they get a chunk of 70 to 80% with respect to construction and then operating of the plant is also still goes to them. So about 70% of that input goes back outside. So now if you're going to now even on, on, on them procuring some of the additional equipment, you're going to relax that. You're really just really buying uh, the project, buying energy really, and not looking at other ex- developmental aspects that relates to that project as South Africa. And that will definitely have uh, consequences, in my view, for transformation. We really have no trade-offs. At one point, you have to address the transformational imperatives, which are are genuine. But on the other hand, we have to look at the critical stage, uh, the criticalness of the power crisis, that because we are in such a terrible state, we obviously would opt for procurement of uh, equipment, mainly yes. to foreign companies. And and this on its own is, is counter, you know, productive from a transformational point of view, that the, the monies that have been spent 
are being shipped back to overseas, as you as you currently pointed out. So, but what would you consider as, I suppose, shadowing or taking advantage of these concessions? What would be done differently by government to ensure that you know the transformation agenda does not necessarily fall down or fall back? or being compromised substantively, particularly when there's vast amounts of monies that are going to be spent on procurement. Practically speaking, you know, the entire value chain uh, of, of energy, where can women companies and, and BEE you know, arrangement fit properly to try and, and leverage any concession that is made uh, in respect to energy crisis and some of the investments made by government to try and hold the power outages which have experienced over the past three weeks. Yeah, I think that we have procured before and I said that we have almost 6,000 or 6 gigawatts, 6,000 megawatts or 6 gigawatts of capacity that is on stream in South Africa right now. So that means that we have a very good understanding of the procurement process and I said we are going to try now to get a almost double of that capacity in a very short space of time. If government is, is serious about transformation, we should uh, methodically understand what's achievable with respect to what we've already procured and keep on improving on that. If I go to a country and I can procure and I can um, get concessions on relaxation of certain things, I will try as much as possible to get as much as I can out of that process. So what I'm saying is that uh, we should not be a facilitator for that kind of of thinking or the kind of mentality. So the government should sit around again, diagnose properly, and look at the experience that they have. We started procuring, procuring, we didn't start procuring today, on the Renewable Energy IPP program in 2011. We've had a number of, of bid rounds from bid window one, bid window two, bid window three, bid window four. Now we're talking about relaxing bid window five and bid window six. So it's not like uh, because it's a crisis, we are now starting to procure and we don't understand what needs to happen. We have lessons and uh, we understand what can be done and we should apply our minds to make sure that we don't leave transformation out on the question of in so-called emergency, because although this may be an emergency situation, as I said, we've started procuring these projects in 2011. It's 2022 today. Surely there are lessons there, and surely we understand what can and cannot be achieved with respect to transformation. I couldn't agree with you more. On the lessons learned um, aspect, ESCOM, uh, we are told, will require $1.3 trillion in infrastructure investment by 2030. And based on what has happened with Kusila and Midubi's construction, which resulted in delays and budget exceeding over 300 billion rand, what lessons are we learning from your end? What lessons are we learning that should not be repeated given the amount of investment that is needed? You've, you've spoken about governance, you've spoken about fraud, you've spoken about the national key points issues. In a nutshell, from where you're sitting and based on what is ideal, how do you overcome these kind of issues? Firstly, ESCOM is overburdened. I think, as you probably know, with uh, about 392, or it fluctuates, let's say almost 400 billion of debt. Before we even talk about ESCOM's ability to procure, because if, if, if ESCOM has to procure, they have to borrow money from the international market and local financial sector. First and foremost, I think government has uh, the crisis committee 
has alluded to this problem having existed in a, for a long time. And one of the problems that need to be tackled before we even start to talk about how much ESCOM needs to spend. So we hear that government is looking at that, and the ministers mentioned Delhi Khotla, that is going to be national treasury minister, is going to be in September, and then uh, in his medium-term budget policy statement, he will come up with the scenarios in terms of what government will do to help with that challenge. I think they are hinting at potentially taking as a sovereign, taking that debt on our South Africa balance sheet to be able to, because of an unsustainable debt with ESCOM will be unsustainable for government. So that's one thing that has been in the background for a very long time that we need to resolve before we even talk about what ESCOM is likely to procure or not. And then to get back to your question with respect to managing the program, we first need to understand that we have the capacity as ESCOM to procure a big build program like we are envisaging we are going to to have. Um, though, though I think that most of the procurement will be um, by IPPs and ESCOM will probably just buy the actual power rather than to construction themselves, except where they want to repurpose some of the plants to renewable energy. Firstly, in terms of the governance would be would be important to make sure that before we can in, be involved as ESCOM in that regard, that we tighten up on governance. We have uh, potentially, we probably need transaction advisors, people that have done this type of procurement in the past, unlike going at ESCOM uh, in the build program that we had with Kusile Metupi and all of that. Um, ESCOM had not procured such big infrastructure for a long time and took that for granted by just using themselves as people who could. They could have beefed themselves up with transaction advisors of people that have done similar uh, uh, similar undertakings outside of South Africa. So I think the most important thing would be to tighten up and strengthen on governance, have legal uh, advisors that are competent, that are um, tier one type of advisors, to advise on a procurement program, which have done this before. Wow, thank you very much. That's quite an interesting update uh, or uptake in terms of what needs, uh, what ESCOM and government in particular needs to do to address this very uh, complex and multi-layered uh, issue of, of uh, recovery, which has bearing on the overall recovery of the country, given the fact that energy plays such such an important role because without energy, everything just goes up, as we have seen. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it here, ma'am. Thank you very much for your insight. It has been a very fascinating conversation that we've had with, had with you. And thanks for sharing your time with us. Thank you. There you go. That was a very thought-provoking and insightful conversation I've had with Rose Moleshe, who is a development finance specialist with vast experience in energy and infrastructure across South, across uh, African continent. Um, the issues that she has really shared with us does point to uh, complexities which government is trying to, you know, navigate um, in addressing one of the biggest challenges uh, faced by this current government. Uh, I mean, obviously, not all the national key points have been assaulted. We've seen, practically speaking, we've seen revelation coming from the Zona Commission on the 
total collapse of governance in so many instances. Fraud, corruption, maladministration, you name it. Clearly, this current administration has got so much issues to resolve before we, we can really set the country back on track, as it were. Gonna live it here. It has been absolutely beautiful. Have yourself a wonderful week ahead. Shalom.